Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Now, typically in genetics and evolution, we're looking for mutations that confer an advantage to the individuals who possess them. But what if that mutation breaks a gene? Traditionally, this loss of function has been viewed as a disadvantage, but now we know that isn't always true. Sometimes, less is more. In this episode, we're going to delve into this idea, as we explore the recent Heredity Review, the population genomics of adaptive loss of function. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. Can you please both introduce yourselves? Thank you. Um, Thanks for having us. My name is Gray Monroe. I'm an assistant professor at the University of California, Davis, in the Department of Plant Sciences. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for having us on, James. Yeah, I'm Porik Flood. I'm a research scientist at Wageningen University in the Department of Plant Breeding. Perfect. So you're both here to talk about this really fascinating review that you published in Heredity, The Population Genomics of Adaptive Loss of Function. And before we get into the actual details of it, I wonder if you could just give us a general idea of what this paper is about. Maybe I can start. So to begin with, maybe we can explain how the paper happened. Uh, So myself and Gray didn't actually know each other. And uh, at the time, I was living in Cologne, in Germany. And I saw this tweet from Gray. It was announcing a talk he was going to give in Cologne. And with the tweet was a picture which looks a lot like figure six in the current paper. And I had seen something very similar in my own data, but I wasn't able to attend his talk. I can't remember why. But I thought, oh, I really want to meet this guy. I want to, I want to talk to him because he's presenting images of results that are really similar to what I have. So I sent him a message on Twitter and said, hey, would you have time to meet? And by chance, his uh, his girlfriend lived around the corner from where I lived in Cologne. So we met at a, a bar called uh, Café Goldmund, which is this really nice bar full of books and everything, just perfect setting. And we went, had a beer there and we started talking and we realized that we were both seeing very similar results in our data. And we felt there was a gap of knowledge in the community. And it was something that there was room for a review for. And, and that's how it grew from there. And it was actually something I think, Gray, you had already kind of started writing a review on the topic, actually. So I, I, I sort of jumped on board. <laughs> yeah. So basically, you know, I had been doing some some other work in the past where we had been looking at some genes in Arabidopsis thaliana that showed some evidence of what could be called adaptive loss of function. And so as I sort of dug into that and was studying that, I realized there was kind of a, a shortcoming in the in the literature and the sort of appreciation for the role that this kind of variation can play in adaptation. So this is what kind of inspired the need for a review. And I think loss of function mutations are interesting because they raise all kinds of questions in population genetics about what kinds of variation can contribute to adaptive evolution. And then what does that variation look like at a molecular level. And what we realized when we sort of started talking and we were hanging out at Goldmoon and considering this paper is that there's a lot of sort of surprising phenomenon that you observe when you start looking into these cases of adaptive loss of function. And I think one of the things that we became most interested in was the observation that people have made that when there's adaptive loss of function happening, what people tend to observe is that it's not just one 
mutation. Normally, people detect multiple, potentially dozens of independent loss of function mutations that all sort of have the same functional effect. This is called allelic heterogeneity, and this phenomenon of allelic heterogeneity turns out to be kind of problematic for a lot of the assumptions that we make in population genetics. And so this sort of merger of thinking about the functional basis of evolution with some of the challenges that it presents for population genetic analyses, we just thought would be kind of a cool topic to raise attention about, but also present some of the solutions that come from modern genomic sequencing and annotation methods to try to overcome some of those challenges. So that's sort of, yeah, that's the origin, sitting around at Gold Moon, drinking Kolsch and uh, and just talking about genetics. And it became kind of a regular thing. And then we were fortunate to get John McKay and Detlef Beigel involved, two advisors who have thought a lot about genetics and think about some of this stuff. And so we were happy to have them contribute their thoughts as well on this paper. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I mean, it is a, it's a really great paper and it seems to be getting an awful lot of attention. But I guess just to step back a little bit, when you're talking about adaptive loss of function, I guess for a lot of people who might be listening, that still might sound a bit contradictory and some people might not fully get what you mean. But as you were mentioning, they kind of all hinge on this idea of loss of function mutations. So what exactly do you mean by adaptive loss of function and loss of function mutations? Well, first of all, with loss of function mutation, that sounds like it should be an easy thing to explain, but you can make it complicated. And at some point, it can become a little bit semantic. So the easiest way to define it is basically the gene has completely lost all function. So the most extreme case being the gene has been removed from the genome. There are other situations where you could consider loss of function, like, for example, the gene may no longer be expressed in a specific tissue. And then you could argue that the gene's function has been lost in that tissue. And there are many examples of this. But for this review, we decided to just focus on the most extreme case, which is the gene's function is completely lost altogether. And that can happen in many ways. And there are some types of ways that this happen. So things where, for example, you might get a premature stop codon or a loss of a start codon. So the gene is no longer being properly read from the genome or there's a frame shift or something like this. These are relatively easy to annotate from the sequence data. But there's other kinds of mutations which can also remove gene function, which are not as easy to annotate. For example, non-synonymous variation. And in cases where people have identified multiple loss of function events in a given gene and then done a lot of work on that individual gene, of course they find loss of function events also caused by non-synonymous variation. Uh, so there can be really a lot of it there. And the adaptive sense is when something is function is repeatedly lost independently in different populations and often associated with a specific environment. So loss of function is commonly associated with local adaptation. Then you start to think that this is a strange pattern and this is no longer just random. So I think it does seem kind of counterintuitive when you think about the idea that losing something can be adaptive, because I think we have a tendency to think about genetics and evolution as a process of improvement. And I think there's an intuition that evolution is always a process of refining and sort of improving function. And I think that sort of thinking you can sort of see if you go back to the sort of founding documents of modern molecular evolutionary theory, you see a lot of language that seems to assume that these kind of knockout mutations are necessarily going to be deleterious. And I think that's one of the points we raise in this paper is to sort of put this in a historical context that what we're describing and what people have found, these instances of of what appears to be beneficial loss of function, loss of function that actually improves fitness under certain circumstances, seems to be counterintuitive in the context of some of these historical perspectives. So that's a bit surprising to people. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I think it's kind of a fun topic to, to think about more. 
Yeah, for sure. And you do have a couple of examples in your paper. So do you have any sort of particular favorite examples of loss of function mutations or adaptive loss of function? Yeah, there's a nice way of describing it, which is the less is more hypothesis. In some cases, this is actually true. So certainly in bacteria and in some parasitic organisms, gene loss seems to be adaptive because maintenance of genes and large genomes, certainly in bacteria, has a cost. But I think people are more surprised when they see it in multicellular eukaryotes, because I think the general intuition is that that is not a major cost for them. They Genome size varies massively in plants, so the size of the genome doesn't seem to matter too much. But less is more is one way of thinking about it. So one of the first examples that sort of started to shift this paradigm was the example of CCR5, which is a gene in humans that when there's what appear to be essentially loss of function mutations, these increase resistance to HIV. And this was one of the examples that was discovered in the 1990s. And this is kind of what led to this paper by Olson, which is this less is more hypothesis where he says, you know, look, there's actually some examples even in humans where gene loss of function appears to provide some benefit. So I think that's a great example in humans. That's sort of one of the first examples that was really well studied. And then now we have examples in basically all kinds of organisms. I think another cool example, it comes from agriculture and the genetic basis of the green revolution. So if you look at the genetic basis of semi-dwarf varieties of rice, they are loss of function mutations in genes involved in gibberellin biosynthesis. And so these are obviously genes that are under extremely strong selection in um, agricultural settings. Um, And so it's clear that from these examples that loss of function can be selected on. And then, of course, there's examples in natural populations as well. Yeah, the last one that Gray mentioned is definitely my favorite. We call it GA5. It's a gibberellin 20 oxidase. And when you break the gene, you're no longer able to efficiently convert inactive gibberellin to active gibberellin, so the cells don't elongate as much. And uh, that's how we got talking about this, because it was a, a figure. I think that was inspired by the Barbosa paper, right, Gray? Yeah. The figure six initially. But this gene and knockouts in this gene are very important for for beer, because um, <laughs> uh, these, these semi-dwarf varieties are important for high-yielding barley. So I think because it gave rise to this figure that got us in touch and because it's important for the supply of beer, I think that's definitely my favorite example in the paper. Gave rise to its own paper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a self-fulfilling gene. I think it's also worth noting that this pathway and this in orthologs of this gene experience loss of function in natural populations. And so I, I think it's worth emphasizing that this kind of beneficial loss of function isn't restricted to agricultural settings and uh, artificial selection, but is also happening in, in natural populations as well. Yeah, because the paper that we spoke about was actually studying this gene in Arabidopsis, and it was studying it in wild populations of Arabidopsis. And interestingly, the reason that this gene is lost, the, the drive, the selective force driving loss of function in these natural populations is not really known. And it's probably the case that it's different selective forces in different populations. So that's another thing is that it's not always the same reason that these genes are lost in different contexts. So that complicates things even further. I mean, I guess those examples show perfectly well why this is such an important and interesting part of biology. One of the things I find interesting there is when you're talking about it being quite complex. And when you were talking about breaking this elongation gene, I think one of the most fun lines you have in your paper is that there's many different ways to break a gene. And I wonder if you could just explain exactly what you mean by this and the implications it has for, say, population genetics. Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting point about loss of function, that there's many different ways to break the function of a gene. 
one way I like to think about it is in the opening line of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, um, which is that happy families are all alike and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And so we can sort of think about that analogy for gene function. And so functional genes are all alike, but non-functional genes are all non-functional in their own way. And so there's, there's many different ways to do this. And so at a molecular level, this is sort of what we talk about when we think about defining loss of function. So if you imagine a frame shift mutation as a way of breaking a gene, that frame shift mutation could exist at many different places within the coding sequence of a gene. So in that sense, there's potentially thousands of different independent mutations that could lead to the same functional output, which is a a non-functional allele. Yeah, and and I think an important thing to add to that is when people consider that adaptation occurs by gain of function, imagine you've got a gene that's a thousand base pairs long. There's only a few base pairs that will add or improve that gene. And those mutations then are very restricted. So let's say out of a thousand, there's only three places where you can improve that gene. But along that thousand base pair sequence, you could break it at any point with different kinds of mutations. So the mutational input of loss of function is much higher than of gain of function, which is why you end up with so many loss of function alleles when they're adaptive. And then this is what we term allelic heterogeneity. So you may have two allelic classes in in terms of phenotype, but the genetic underpinnings when it's a loss of function can be much more complex in that there can just be many, many more events giving rise to the same phenotypic outcome, whereby with a gain of function, that's highly unlikely. And so I think what makes this so interesting for population genetics is that what it means when we think about something like mutation rate, it means that the mutation rate that generates loss of function mutations is probably orders of magnitude greater than the molecular mutation rate of specific mutations because there's so many different ways to produce the same allele. And and one interesting way to think about this is in the context of some of the early methods that were used to estimate mutation rate. And so when people were estimating mutation rate in the 1940s, they were looking at mutation rate manifest at the phenotypic level. So they were looking at phenotypes arising at what rate that occurred. And their estimates of mutation rate were orders of magnitude greater than the molecular mutation rates that we now observe by looking at DNA sequences alone. And this is kind of interesting because it suggests that they were observing something similar. They were observing the mutation rate of alleles being generated through something that might involve something like allelic heterogeneity. So they were seeing the mutation rate giving rise to new alleles, maybe of the same functional class, but not the exact same mutations. Yeah, and and back then they would not have known that these alleles had independent origins unless they had observed them in specific populations. But the point was they would see a specific phenotype arising. I, I don't know, Gray, whether you want to talk about the historical meaning of the word allele and how that can lead to some confusion in this regard. Yeah, so this does lead us to ask, what is the definition of allele? And one question that has come up throughout the process of writing this paper and talking about some of these ideas is trying to use a definition of allele that's consistent with kind of traditional population genetics. The population genetic theory that emerged from the modern synthesis, at least, where an allele was defined as as a unit of functional inheritance at the gene level that's observable as a phenotype. And so if we define allele like that, then it challenges some of the modern definitions of allele, which is that an allele is every single polymorphism in the genome. For example, a loss of function allele is going to behave very differently than every individual polymorphism in the genome because each polymorphism isn't behaving like an allele because the allele is actually the aggregate of all of those independent mutations that have the same functional effect. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I imagine that those kind of discussions will probably lead to quite a lot of arguments. But I mean, it is a very cool idea. And there's obviously some really interesting stuff going on here. But I can also kind of sense that some population geneticists might be getting some cold sweats. And I wonder if the current methods that we're using are up to the challenge of adaptive loss of function, given that they are so different to what we're usually looking for. Yeah, I think allelic heterogeneity makes a lot of people's lives a lot harder than they would necessarily like them to be because allelic heterogeneity, broadly speaking, can do two things. If you do a genome-wide association analysis and you've got allelic heterogeneity in there, you could have a very important gene. You know, For example, the function has been lost multiple times and it's really important for the phenotype. But because there's so many alleles, it doesn't reach a statistical significance because each of the alleles sort of takes a bit of the association and they divide it up between them to say it in a simple way. And this same thing kind of happens when you try to look for signatures of selection. So if there's one, uh, one allele that has been strongly selected, then that'll leave a nice clean signature in the genome. But if there are many alleles being selected, then it's not as easy to understand what's happened. And this, whether there's multiple alleles or a single allele being selected, has actually been something that has given rise to quite some debate over the last few years. And this is like when a single allele is being selected, it's known as a hard selective sweep. And when multiple alleles are being selected, it's known as a soft selective sweep. And the relative importance of soft versus hard selective sweeps to adaptation is is something which a lot of people have, have argued about. And certainly in the case of loss of function, it seems that soft sweeps are far more common than hard sweeps but they're not as easy to find. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, I don't know, maybe you want to add something to that, Gray. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of really fantastic work that's been done trying to detect soft sweeps and finding soft sweeps that are contributing to adaptation. What I think we propose and that I think is an exciting area for future work is to try to develop more functionally explicit population genetic models where we have the whole genome sequence data for large numbers of individuals. And because we know the functional elements of the genome, we can make predictions about what that variation will do at a functional level. And then we can classify that variation into groups of variants that have similar functional effects. And these are what we can define as sort of functional allele states. And from that, then you can sort of perform population genetics with those functional categories of variation and try to find what we might think of as sweeps of variants that share a similar functional effect. And so this is where I think there's a lot of cool opportunities for population genetics to sort of expand into a more functionally explicit set of analyses that might complement some of the more functionally agnostic methods that are found in a lot of the soft sweep um, approaches that are being done now. And, and that would be also very important for the problem of allelic heterogeneity, because if you can bin your alleles into different functional categories and include that when you do your genome-wide association analysis, well, people have already shown that if you can identify those different functional categories, you can start to get associations. 
So identifying those and being able to functionally classify polymorphisms is also a problem. And solving that would allow us to do what Gray just suggested, which is bin them into these categories. And loss of function are interesting in the sense that they're probably one of the easiest types of functional uh, variants to annotate bioinformatically, but they're not completely easy either. So we mentioned earlier on that there's a problem that non-synonymous variants can also lead to loss of function, but you don't necessarily know which ones will. And there's been some developments over the last few years in trying to identify which non-synonymous variants are more likely to lead to loss of function or at least altered function. And that is ongoing research, but that is something which we think really needs to happen. And if we can confidently bin alleles into different functional categories, then we can start to address things like allelic heterogeneity and soft sweeps in the way that Gray just described. Mm, fantastic. I mean, you've been mentioning there quite a lot of the opportunities and things you want to see. And I guess review papers are always sort of looking forwards. And I kind of wonder explicitly where you're hoping research on loss of function is going to go next. So maybe not just the analytical methods you've talked about. What is it you're hoping to see in the research? So I think there's a number of interesting questions that emerge when you start to consider the possibility that loss of function mutations can contribute to adaptation. And we put a few of these into the, I guess, conclusion section of the paper, but there's a bunch of interesting questions that come out of that. One of them is, if loss of function can be adaptive, what does that mean for the future evolvability of populations? If they're losing genes through adaptation, does that say something interesting about how they can evolve into the future? And another interesting question that emerges is, do species and populations differ in their capacity to evolve via loss of function? Are there certain features of species mating systems or ploidy levels that might predict whether they can evolve by loss of function? And then other interesting questions that emerge are what is the role of loss of function in the emergence of things like trade-offs and antagonistic pleiotropy and reproductive isolation? So I think there's a bunch of interesting sort of questions that are broadly interesting for evolutionary genetics that kind of come out of a perspective that loss of function can be adaptive. Yeah, absolutely. So to expand slightly on that, like if you can imagine if you completely remove the function of a gene from a species, then in the future, if that gene could be useful, it no longer has that option. So it needs to come up with a different solution. One example that I like, it's not specifically a gene, but it's a trait. So all monocots, so the grasses, it's thought that their ancestral state was herbaceous. And then they split off from other flowering plants, uh, maybe 100 million years ago. I don't know exactly how long ago they split off from them. But since then, they've evolved arborescence multiple times, but they didn't have the ability to make wood. They had to reinvent it. And they reinvented it in many different ways. So from bamboo to palm trees to uh, cordelines and dragon trees. And each one of these is a different way of making wood, while all other woody plants make it in just one way. So in an interesting kind of way, they lost the ability to make wood and then they reinvented it, but they didn't reinvent it the way it was before, but in many different ways of becoming a tree and becoming woody. This loss of function in a way led to innovation in this particular case. And that's, of course, in a very deep evolutionary perspective. Our paper has been focused more on local adaptation and ongoing processes. But one of the interesting things that I would like to see in the future would be people to wonder about, well, how can removing function change and alter genetic or evolutionary paths? Mm, that's very cool. And I guess there's a lot in this paper for people to think about, but I wonder what you both think the sort of key message is. So when people have read it, what are you hoping they're going to take away from it? 
That's the best question. Um, we're not the first people to pose the idea that loss of function can be adaptive. But what I hope people gain from this paper is sort of looking at patterns of genetic variation that are being generated now, especially with the generation of whole genome sequence data across large numbers of individuals and species, and sort of looking at that from a new perspective, and at least considering the possibility that some of this variation that's often assumed to be deleterious could be doing something more interesting in evolution. So I think that's one thing is just to, to sort of appreciate the possibilities that are there and see things from a different perspective. And then also, I think hopefully people who are studying this genetic variation and might be encountering this type of variation, hopefully those people who read this paper will be inspired by some of the new possibilities that are emerging from uh, analyses of that data to try to find that variation that might actually be beneficial. So I hope people are gaining a new conceptual appreciation of loss of function, but also some practical knowledge about how we can study this. Yeah, I, I would like people to take away from the paper is that loss of function is important from an evolutionary perspective, but important in the sense that it can facilitate adaptation and can facilitate innovation, actually. And also that it might be causing problems in how you interpret your data. So if you do a genome-wide association analysis and you do not find the genes that you think you should find, that might be because they're not important, but it also might be because they're very important, but because of allelic heterogeneity, they're not coming up and not becoming statistically significant. And the same with regards to when you're scanning the genome for signatures of selection, to keep this in mind is that, uh, what is it? They say absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but especially with loss of function because of these really high mutation rates. Yeah, I think those are very good messages that uh, hopefully people will take on board when they, you know, go and read your paper. And I guess, thank you both for joining us to share your stories about how this idea came about and sort of key points of it. And just to finish up, I wonder if you could just remind us what your paper is called. And also, I know you mentioned them earlier, but your co-authors who were important in bringing this review to us. The paper is titled The Population Genomics of Adaptive Loss of Function. The authors are myself, Gray Monroe, um, John McKay, Detlef Beigel, and Cork Flood. Perfect. Well, thank you very much both for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thank you. Thank you for having us on. Thanks to Graham Porrick. You can find their paper on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash HDY. While you're there, you can also check out how to submit your papers to the journal. Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can subscribe to the Heredity podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.